audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. Heritopia, it's Jeremy Vaney. This Tuesday, March 29th, 2011, I release my new book, Urgency, on Amazon.com. It's a book of spirituality unlike any other. It's actually more of an experiment than a book. An experiment to transform you, the reader. It's not self-help. It's not self-empowerment. It's not the power of intention. It's simply outlining some facts and truths of the human condition in such a way as to give your brain no wiggle room. This is a book that first speaks to you, the reader, and then speaks to the brain. And in that way, do I hope to effect a change? I don't know that it'll work, but it'll be fascinating to try. And either way, it will be one hell of a ride. So pick it up March 29th. Take the plunge into the depths and see what happens next. Jeff Ritzman. Jeremy Vaney. If you fear one thing in your life, fear the gin. Dun, dun, dun. They're going to kick our asses, you know. <laughs> the gin or the Brogno? Yeah. Uh, Guiley team. Uh, the gin. Oh. Uh, that is, if you fear one thing in your life, fear the gin is, uh, is at the top of uh, Phil and Brogno and uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley's website, JinUniverse.com, which is www.djinnuniverse.com. It is a swell-looking site. I just like that that's, you know, usually when you're trying to sell something, it's like, if you could use any one thing this year and make it a blank. <laughs> this is if you fear any one thing in life. <laughs> this is it. For the gin. Anyway, Paratopia, I'm Jeremy Vaney. And I'm Jeff Ritzman, and this is... Well, Paratopia. Yeah, it's Paratopia. Otherwise, I wouldn't have addressed you. <laughs> I was going to say 2020, but I don't uh, know. Well, it could be that, too. 
Uh, actually, this is like 2020 in that it's um, a, a really long, in-depth interview. It goes uh, the full two hours and more. So maybe we shouldn't do too much here except introduce uh, Phil Imbrogno. Do we have anything that we need to talk about that's really pressing? No. No. Uh, your email, is it filled up with people who want to come on and challenge us about any of the stuff that we <laughs> that we proposed last week? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's overflowing. So yeah. <laughs> All it's right. overflowing with uh, with emails from colleges that want me to take a psychology course and um, uh, and men who want to sell me pills to make my penis larger. Were any of either from the University of the Rockies? Uh, no, oh. actually. <laughs> Funny enough. No. All right. Well, uh, everyone knows and loves Phil and Brogno. I don't know why we should even belabor the point. I mean, the dude is a legend in the paranormal slash ufological field. He worked with J. Allen Hynek. He's most famous for uh, his work in the Hudson Valley, not just with the Hudson Valley UFO sightings, but also the uh, pre-Celtic structures that he has unearthed and brought me and a group of people to a couple of times very generously. He's also a writer for Paratopia Magazine. So look at, look how that works. That's how that works. What what need we say about Phil and Brogno? How can we pump up Phil and Brogno any more any more than than he already is pumped up? I just say Night Siege the Hudson Valley UFO sightings. 1986 and still in print. That's all you need to know. <laughs> I mean, like you said, he's legendary throughout ufology and uh, uh, and, and on our show not too awfully long ago said, uh, you know, I'm pretty fed up with UFOs. I'm fed up with – I mean, he's pretty much reached the same place we have and uh, is starting to poke around in different areas and the gin being one of them. So uh, I'm really – I've been looking forward to this for a while. Humans are made of mud and clay. Angels are made from what? Wheat thins? Life. Um, sugar and spice and everything nice. <laughs> the gin are made from smokeless fire. Well, tonight Otherwise known as Sterno. <laughs> yes. Tonight we're going to learn all about the gin. And I do mean all about the gin. Uh, or as the gin like to call themselves, God's other people. Right. Um, and actually, maybe that should have been that instead of if you fear one thing in your life, fear the gin, maybe it should have been gin, the other white meat. No? You're going to get your ass kicked. <laughs> I'm telling you now. Yeah. No, I think the things that sound like the gin uh, actually visit you more than they visit me. So, <laughs> no so, <comment. laughs> so perfect. Right. <laughs> perfect yeah. for me. I wipe my hands of this. Yeah. This butt kicking. Well, what else is new? Anyway, <laughs> uh, shall we get on to Phil? Yes. Well, Jer, here's something to mention before we jump into this interview. Uh, and for you listeners at home. Uh, harken back to the interview with Ted Phillips about Marley Woods. Keep in mind the color coding. Remember what Ted said about the red lights. They are hostile and aggressive. Keep that in mind as you listen to Phil talk about color coding and the gin. Very good. The Jeff. Here it is. Phil and Brogno. The interview. Fear the gin. Well, ladies and germs of Paratopia, you wanted it, you asked for it. Nay, you begged for it. You wanted Phil and Brogno back to talk about his book, The Vengeful Gin. Uh, and he has um, obliged us. So we're very happy uh, to have Phil back. Phil, thank you for coming back on the show. Well, it's great to be back, guys. And 
uh, I didn't realize you had that many requests for me. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like a Phil Imbrogno renaissance at Paratopia. It's you know, strange. I got to tell tell my uh, my cousin to stop calling over and over again. <laughs> yeah, we know you sent your whole fan club over here, Phil. We know what the score is, so. <laughs> I was wondering why everything was imbrogno at Gmail. I didn't understand. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you sort of touched on it the last time you were here. Your, um, your sort of the well, I don't want to say your theory on the gin, but the fact that you were looking into the gin as a possibility for at least some of this uh, paranormal phenomena, and now you've got a book with uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley on it. What are we to make of this, Phil? <laughs> Are they real? Are, is there a race called the Jinn? Do you honestly believe that they're real and, and not just a myth or a legend? And if so, how did you come to that? All these questions. I feel like I'm back in the classroom, Jeremy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, boy. Let me start from... Okay. You know, um, the way the book came about was very interesting because, you know, Rosemary has all of this background on the historical aspects of the paranormal, especially you know, the so-called mythical beings. She really didn't have too much information on jinn, but she's like, you know, fairies, leprechauns, and, uh, and other things like that, that uh, in the historical aspects of, of Solomon's Key. And uh, so, you know, all of that is all separate, is like loose material. But when you factor in the idea that jinn are responsible well, it's sort of like, you know, coalesces it together, and it's um, that missing point in the equation for the paranormal. I mean, once again, you know, if you look at the paranormal, all the events, UFOs, shadow people, ghosts, you know, demonology, I mean, you have all of these people specializing in these fields. But if you look at the paranormal as a whole, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you know... People are ghost hunters or either ufologists or something like that. And, but there's a, um, a factor there that unites all of these phenomena together. And I'm not saying jinn are responsible for the entire spectrum of what we call the paranormal, but they could be responsible for a, a pretty large percentage of it. And, um, I, you know, I can go in why, uh, but, you know, I would have to start from ground zero. Would you like to hear ground zero to the beginning, from the beginning, in the beginning? Yeah, I would. But uh, before we do that, um, because I know I'll forget this question somewhere along the way, are there other uh, correlates with the jinn outside of the Middle East? Oh, Absolutely. Um, you have to remember that um, in the Middle East, they have these people, these beings, these entities in legend. And not only in legend, um, in history, they interacted with uh, human beings in the Middle East um, more than the other, in, in any other place. Primarily because in the Middle East, we have a longer recorded history. It goes back further in time. At one time, it seems, going back to ancient Persia, going back to King Solomon, you know, going back to the glory days of Baghdad and, you know, and all of that, it seems at one time, jinn coexisted with human beings for a while. And do I, do I believe that the jinn race exists? Um, 
you know, I have to weigh, you know, what I found out over the years and what I've seen and what I've heard. And um, I would have to say, yes, there's always doubt in my mind. You know, the scientific part of me says, you know, oh, come on, you know, you don't have one captured in your room. Well, maybe I do. I don't know. Some strains have been going on around here. But, you know, um, but the thing is, is, yeah, overall, I would have to say, yes, I do believe that a dimensional race of beings exists that coexist with human beings and have for a very long time and have interacted with human beings and they're very close to us in this parallel reality. Did I answer your question or was there something else? No, that was great. So, okay, why don't you bring us back to uh, to ground zero of the gin here? All right, ground zero is, is like, you know, back in the mid-90s, I never heard of uh, anything gin, okay? To me... You know, back then, and, um, you know, gin was a drink, you know, that you drank on the rocks or you mixed in with orange juice or something, you know. So, I mean, you know, I was doing research on, you know, the idea back in 1995, um, actually the Knights Templar and uh, the whole idea of the Holy Grail and all that stuff there. And I was in Israel. And... I was tracking down the legends of the Templars and so on and so on, some of the stories. And, 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 I, and I heard over and over and over again, um, a djinn is there, a djinn of oh, people responsible for djinn. There's a djinn taking over someone. Uh, you don't go into that area because it belongs to the djinn. That's djinn territory. And I'm saying to myself, what the heck is a djinn? So over there, you know... Uh, I became friendly with a number of people, and, and, you know, I don't speak any of the languages over there, but there, you know, you can find somebody who speaks English, and, um, and I was told, well, they said, you're from America, right? I said, yes, I'm from the United States, and they said, um, oh, well, you know Jin as a genie, and then I started laughing, because automatically I started thinking about Barbara Eden, you know, with the half thing, never showing your belly button and all that right. stuff there. And I was thinking of, you know, Robin Williams and, you know, and, and, and Aladdin's Lamp, mostly. And I started laughing. And because the idea, the Western view of the genie is, is, is a supernatural being that's blundering and comical and ditzy and everything. And, um, but over there, they said, no, no, don't laugh. It's very, very serious. And I began to realize that a lot of the Muslim people living there took the idea of jinn very seriously. Uh, more seriously than people in this country here um, who have, you know, deep religious beliefs believe in demons. To us here and to people who claim to be demonologists and so on, the idea of demons is like, you know, well, it's like UFOs, you know. If you don't encounter one, do they really exist? Um, maybe, maybe not. But over there, it was like you were talking about your neighbors next door, that these things are real. So I was told that in order to find more, I became fascinated with the jinn, the idea of the jinn. I heard so many stories. And was it real? I mean, this was an, this was an untouched aspect of the paranormal in the Western world. So I, uh, I was told that if I wanted to find out about the jinn, the, the best place to start was Saudi Arabia. 
Okay, um, it's not very easy to get from Israel to Saudi Arabia. And uh, fortunately, during my time in the military, uh, United States military, um, I had a friend who he and I had been through quite a bit together. And he was actually, um, and I knew it, he was actually a, um, a colonel in the private security force of the royal family of Saudi Arabia. And I haven't seen this person, this individual, in many, many years. And, and our relationship was kind of touchy at times. But uh, to make a long story short, we both served in Cambodia. So I send them a telegram. And I'm, I'm in Tel Aviv. And I figured I'm not going to get a reply, you know. I'll probably just end up going back, you know, to the United States. And I got a reply within 24 hours. Oh, glad to see you. Come on in. I'll arrange that you get into the country. No problem. Oh, this is great. So I fly from Israel into Rabia and, um, and land. And I'm at the airport and I'm going through customs. Now, I'm in line, and this is where it gets pretty hilarious, a little scary but at the time. And at that time, the king of Saudi Arabia had a severe heart attack. And they were afraid that um, insurgents were going to move and take over the, you know, try to take over the government at that time. So things were pre on pretty heavy alert. And I really didn't know the state of the country when I was going in. Was, a, was, was there a rebel revolution going on? What's going on? So I'm in customs, and this um, you know customs uh, soldier. When you have soldiers, they had soldiers all over the airports, military with guns. And he looks at my passport. He looks at me, and he's just looking. And he gets on the phone, and he's making gestures, and everybody behind me coming in to think, they push everybody back. And I said, oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. And he gestures for the arm, for, for his fingers, and soldiers come. And they escort. What just happened? Hello? Jeff? Well, we just got mysteriously cut off in a way that I've never experienced before, and Phil is saying that... Uh, this has happened to him every time he's done an interview about the gin. Huh. Yeah, they don't like to be talked about. Unless, you know, he just hung up on me and said, you know, cut it out. No, no. In and, fact, it made a noise that I've never heard. It just went, boom. Yeah. You know. Anyway, I'm going to make a very long story short so I don't bore the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting in this room, and this captain of the Saudi Army walks in. And he's from the security force, and he speaks pretty good English, and he said that, um, uh, I said, what's going on? You know, why am I being detained? He said, well, come with me. Didn't answer any questions. And I'm saying, oh, my gosh, you know, he's still part of his, I said, oh, my gosh, you know, my friend Jack, he works for my friend Jack. Jack's his commander. I said, I said, you know, God, you know, Jack and I spent three days R&R &R in Bangkok, and I said, he must have forgot about that by now. I'm, she still can't be mad at me, what would have happened in Bangkok. And so he squirts me out of the room. I figured maybe they're going to put me in a prison somewhere. So I go outside, and there's a big white limousine waiting. 
And I get in the back and I figure, you know, I'm not going to jail in a limousine. But then again, Jack has always had a, a bizarre sense of humor. So, you know, we're driving to the city and we get to the, 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 um, the royal area, you know, where there's a big estate. And um, I go, uh, they, they have a cottage. Jack greets me, gives me a hug, you know, nice to see you and everything. And he has a cottage all ready for me. I mean, inside there were clothes and everything. And I was pretty tired. And he assigned an interpreter and my guide, you know, my liaison to tell me what to do. He says, we're having dinner tonight with a member of the royal family. And there's going to be a number of ambassadors there, and then there's going to be state business and so on. You know, but, but you know, it's at 8 o'clock, so go get some rest and come back. So I go into this cottage, and I go on the bed, and I just fall right to sleep. And it seemed like I just closed my eyes and there's a knocking on the door. And this secretary walks in who ended up the guy as my uh, interpreter. He's supposed to instruct me on what to do. And he was pretty upset that I was not ready to go. Because he says, we have to get to the dinner party before his highness does. It was going to be the, the prince. And, um, and he's telling me all these things I have to do. I'm dressing up and they have a tuxedo for me. And he's telling me all of these things. I felt like, you know, I was in a feudal system. Oh, if you, we must get there before his highness. And if you're, you know, having a drink when his highness walks in, you must put the drink down. If you're smoking a cigarette, put the cigarette out. Do not look his highness in the eyes. Do not go and introduce yourself to his highness. He, if he wants to talk to you, he will come over to you. And I'm saying, oh, my gosh. And at the dinner table, they said, do not sit down until his highness sits down. His highness will offer a toast. And he said, drink with your right hand. And do not put your glass down until his highness finishes, you know, his drink and puts it down after the toast. And after the toast, you may say, uh, here, here, or very nice and That'll be acceptable. And do not sit down until his highness sits down. Do not talk to his highness on the dinner table. If he wants to say something to you, he will address you. And do not look him directly in the eyes unless you are speaking to him. I said, oh, my gosh. So we're at the cocktail party, and there were, you know, a number of ambassadors and reverend ministers and so on. And I probably looked pretty cool in the tuxedo, which fit perfectly, by the way. But they thought I was some type of ambassador from somewhere. Glad to hear. And <laughs> and you know, uh, but you know, and and you know, and I put on the put on the show. So dinner came along. We sat down, and they announced that. Uh, well, before dinner, they announced that the prince was not able to attend, but the cousin of the prince, and I can't remember his name, but I remember the prince's name. It's written in the book. I can't say these Arab Arab names anyway. Anyway. So I'm I'm sitting down. Um, my friend Jack is next to me. I'm sitting down two seats down on the right hand side of the cousin of the prince, the cousin of the royal family. He was some type of minister because they were referring to him as Excellency. I imagine he was a minister of something. So you know, dinner's going along, and um, and this he's sitting at the head of the table. He has these big gorilla-like security guards alongside of them, just standing there, glaring at me with their sunglasses, thinking that I'm going to make some type of move, perhaps. And the, 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 cousin, the cousin of the royal family looks at me and says, you are an American. 
I said, yes. He said, what are you doing in my country? I said, I'm here researching the jinn. And he yells at the top of his voice that everybody put down their fork on the table. This is a big, long table. And they just look. He goes, the jinn? He says, I will tell you about the jinn. He says, the jinn are very real. And people in your government and my government have been trying to capture one for many years. I said, well, did they ever catch one? And they said, he said, he doesn't know because it's of the highest security that he's not privileged to. And I started asking something, and he said, this conversation is over. Okay. So he talks in Arabic to my friend Jack. And um, after dinner, I'm going back to the cottage, and I said, what did he say to you? What, wanted me executed or something? He said, no, he referred to me. He told me to take you to a part of town where there's a mosque, where there's a holy man who's very old, who knows all about the jinn. I said, fine. So I go into the cottage, and you know, I, I get my night's sleep. Uh, Seven o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on the door, and it's the captain who picked me up at the airport and said that Jack can't go with us. He has other duties, and so on and so on. So, now this is where it gets really interesting. Um, So, he says, well, you have to change clothes. You can't dress like an American in the part of, of the city we're going into because you'll be a target. So he puts me in the in the customary Arabic clothes for that time of the year, um, you know, and I looked like something like Lawrence out of Arabia, Lawrence of Arabia. But they were very comfortable, I have to admit that. So we drive to uh, the captain. I, his name was Captain Yaramesh. I called him Captain Yar. He said, that's okay. Only an American could get rid of that. And he, t- he reminds me over and over again that I'm not in the United States, that the slightest sign of disrespect, you know, is taken seriously. Hmm. So we go to this mosque, it, it, this old building. He told me it was a, a holy place a long time ago. The building, he said, was 300 years old. And we go in, and there's this really old guy, you know, um, sitting on the floor smoking a water pipe. And I don't know what he was smoking, but he had a big smile on his face. And I was told, um, you know, I could ask questions, but I could not get into, you know, a discussion with him. I would ask a question, he would ask it, and he would interpret. So I asked him uh, all these questions about the jinn, and, of course, the interpretation back and forth, and I'm writing it down because they wouldn't let me tape. The old guy thought that tape recorders were, he didn't want his voice taped for some reason. So, okay. So I'm writing down this information. And he told me the history of the jinn from the very early days of their fall from planet Earth all the way up to the present and told me everything. But this guy knew everything about jinn. And it was not a lot, it wasn't a lot of the mumbo-jumbo that you see going on in Islam and in the Arab countries right now about the jinn. They kind of like put a lot of mystical, supernatural nonsense behind them with uh, all kinds of crazy things. Well, we do that in the United States, too, when we talk about angels and demons and supernatural stuff. It's human behavior. But anyway, the, I was told so much information that, uh, I mean, it's incredible. This was an ancient race of beings that predates human beings on this planet that were masters of this world 
that were taken out of this world and put into a parallel reality very close to us. And I'll get into some more of that detail later about the jinn and what I learned about this ancient race, but I'll just continue with the story because it's, uh, it's relevant to, you know, the rest of the interview. Anyway, he tells me that there's a place um, where the jinn enter our world. And it's in Oman, an Arabic country along the Oman Sea and so on. And there's a cave called, called Majas al-Jinn, which means the meeting place of the jinn. And I said, okay, you know, I want to go there. I mean, when am I going to get back in this area of the world again? So I talked to the captain, Captain Yarn, and he said, well, can you get me into Oman, no problem, um, and get me to, um, you know, where this cave is? He said, well, you know, we'll go back and to the palace and we'll ask Jack and we'll get all the clearance and everything. Well, they had the clearance in a matter of hours. And the next day, I was on a private jet going from Saudi Arabia to Oman, which was only like a 45, 45-minute 45 uh, trip going very slow in a jet. But on that private jet, oh, my gosh, I mean, there's like, um, you know, you could have anything you want. You wanted a, you know, a, a turkey dinner. They had the darn thing. And they had all of these, you know, people, attendants. Uh, and if you're on the private jet, which was part of the royal family, they figure, you know, you're a very important person. So everybody was trying to please you in more ways than one. Anyway, I land in... in um, so you were like the in, Mac Daddy of the Middle East. Is that what you're telling me? Well, I don't know if I was the back daddy, but um, <laughs> I'll tell you, um, you know, I, uh, I put up a pretty good act. <laughs> Phil was rocking the Casbah, that's all. <laughs> I was rocking the Casbah, all right, but, you know, I was just being led around, you know, one false move, you know, and I was probably going to get my throat cut somewhere. <sighs> but it's good because, you see, I, I knew people over there. I made these connections. Otherwise, you, an American would have never been able to do this. So I, I traveled into Omen. We, you know, we land at the, at the main city, and we go down to a town called Finn, which is about halfway down the coast near the Hadjar Mountains. And uh, there we meet a, um, uh, I mean, I'm driving along the coast, and the countryside is absolutely pristine, beautiful, not one speck of litter on the highways or the roads. Nowhere to be found. And I'm saying, God, this country is so beautiful. And I found out later that the, uh, in that country, the crime for littering was the death penalty. So, you know, it was so clean. Wow. So we get down to this little town called Finn, F-I-N-N. Anyway, and there's a, a guide waiting for us. And we spend some time in Finn, and I'm asking about... Um, uh, gin and stuff like that. And people were very reluctant to talk, but they knew a lot about the gin. That was gin territory. Okay? I met a teacher there who was edu actually educated in the United States and, at NYU. And he spoke very good English. And he told me a story. He says, I'm going to tell you a story, but I can't tell you the whole thing because I'm still afraid. He said he likes going hiking through the mountains. 
He said in one, in one particular date, he heard about the jinn, but he never believed in the jinn. He said one particular day, he said, he was hiking through the mountains on a usual trail, and he looked up ahead, and the, the area, the air just above the ground, started looking distorted. And all of a sudden, he said, this black swirling hole appears, and out of it comes, he said, walking a Janaya with her child. A Janaya is a female jinn. According to legend, Janaya are very, could be very nasty. You know, Jeannie was a Janaya, but she was, you know, different. Anyway, they can take human form when they come into our world. And she had a child. And when they take human form, they look very, you know, gorgeous, but they don't look quite absolutely human in the face and the eyes. Anyway, he got very afraid because he heard the legend that Jin, Janayas, with their children are very protective and they don't trust humans. See, throughout history, there's like, there was like a, a mutual fear between humans and Jin. Jin are afraid of the human violent behavior, of course, and humans are afraid of the ability that Jin has and that they have a grudge against the human race. Well, most, some of them do. He said, he was terrified, and he froze in his track, and this Janiah looked at him like, if you make a move, you're dead me. And he just stood, and he ran away. As he's running over the hill, he said, a helicopter, two helicopters come over the hill, and a jeep. And they pick him up, and they put him in the jeep, and they take him into the mountains to where there was a clearing area where there was a base, some type of military base of operations. And he said that they took him into a building, which was obviously some type of debriefing room, put him in a room, and there were Americans there, there were Saudis there, there were people, military from the Oman government, and European government. And they asked him exactly what he saw, what happened, and so on and so on. And he knew from the fact that that was a military operation and that they were trying to capture a jinn because this is one area in where they enter our world. Now, he wouldn't say anymore exactly what they told him because he was more afraid of these people, which were humans, than he was of the Janiyah, the jinn that he saw. So the next day, um, we go, you know, wake up and we're ready to go up in the Hajar Mountains. And, um, and, and, and this is back in 1995, so I didn't really have too much information about this cave. I found out that it was originally called, uh, a name in Arabic called, the, me the, place, where, the place where the goat resides. Okay, later on, it was changed to the meeting place of the jinn. Now, that's an interesting correlation because in ancient history, um, the leader of the jinn, whose name was Iblis, was also identified in, in the Judaic um, um, Kabbalah as being the um, fallen angel Azazel. And Azazel was often, often um, identified as the goat god. Okay, and this is where a lot of the ideas of goats and the devils and so on came from. Anyway, 
So the cave was called, you know, the place of the goat. Later it was changed, I think about 1920 or before the 20th century, um, Majas al-Jinn, the meeting place of the jinn. So we get to the Jeep, and I look in the back, and there are two 9mm pistols. I said, what have we got the pistols for? They said, well, there's bandits in the hills, better to have them, and, you know, and, and, and not need them than to so on and so on. I said, well, okay, you know, then no problem with that. And so they brought all this climbing gear in. I said, aren't we just going to walk into a cave? And they said, oh, you'll see how to get in. So we're driving, which took about 44, God, over an hour, but we had to go really slow because the road was bumpy. And we came to this area where we parked on the trail and we started climbing up to this enormous hill, like a mountain, to the top of it. On the top of the mountain, there were two areas, I believe, that were openings in the ground. And the sun was now just about high enough so it's shining into these holes. And I'm looking down and I'm saying, oh my God, what is this? And they said, this is, you know, the cave's inside. This is the only way to get into the cave, by repelling down 350 feet. The cave is so big inside that you could put the Great Pyramid of Giza in there and still have room. So they hook up all the gear, and um, Yar says to me, they're talking back and forth, Arabic, and I said, well, uh, can one of you guys go? And they said, no, here's where you go alone, my friend. And I said to myself, oh, my gosh. You know, I used to do a lot of climbing, a lot of spelunking and so on, but I wasn't ready to do this. But I went in anyway. I go down, I'm repelling down about 100, I'm down about 150 feet into the cave. And I'm looking down, and there's a lot of echoing going on in there, like water is running and so on, dripping. And I think I hear a voice. And it sounded like there's a voice, an echoing voice, but I couldn't be sure that it was speaking in some type of language. I look down, and there's like a green mist or something that's rising up. And, you know, first I thought perhaps, you know, it's just the way the light was, or you know, the, the sun's heat is going in there and there's water down there and it's evaporating to a mist at certain times of the day. But this was green and it was kind of like blob-like. I'm about down about 150 feet now and all of a sudden I hear all this commotion up at the top. Yar and my guide are up there yelling and screaming back and forth together to each other in Arabic. I couldn't understand what they were saying, but their voice was echoing down in the cave. But I did hear one word, and I understood it quite well. Jin. I look up again, and they're gone. And I said, oh, my God, what's going on here? So, you know, I'm not going down anymore. So I climb back up, and I climb out, and I see them running down the hill. So they just left you to die. Yeah, they were so scared. Wow. I said, where are you going? And they said, it's a gin. They told us to get out of there. We have to get out of here now. It's a gin. The gin want us out. So I figured, I'm not going to be left in some Arabic country. They're, they were ready to take off in, in, in the vehicle, which was a four-wheel drive, you know, sort of like Jeep-like thing. Anyway, I run down the hill after them. I leave all the gear behind and everything. And I just get into the Jeep while they're driving off. 
And I'm in the back seat, and they're talking back and forth and saying all these Arabic prayers. And the captain, Kiar turns around and goes to me, I never believed in them. I never believed in them. I never believed in them, but they're real. They talked to us. They told us in Arabic to get out of their place now or we, they will die. So, and they're saying all these Islamic prayers going back, and uh, we get back to the Finn village, and the guy gets out, and all the people now, there's people in the village are coming to greet us because they know where we went, and he starts telling them what happened. And all of a sudden, the, all the people in the village start yelling at me. And I said, what are they saying? And he says, they are accusing you of waking up a jinn, and they're afraid of repercussions. And I said, and then, the, and, and then he said, well, uh, we must leave. And to make a long story short about that, you know, the local constable came, and uh, we got into the Jeep, and we were practically driving out. You know, of course, the interpreter stayed behind back to the airport to go back to Saudi Arabia. People throwing rocks at our vehicle. This is how upset they were. So I go back to, uh, you know, the airport. I go back to Saudi Arabia and, and kind of shorten the story now. And I spend another week or so in that area. I went to Syria and uh, I went to the borderline of Iraq and, um, um, and to track down more in the gin and got more legends and stories. And I heard some incredible things and incredible claims. For example, one of the things I heard is that certain jinn have already infiltrated in our world, and they're controlling some villages and actually infiltrating into some of the governments of the Middle East. And now, uh, you know, a lot of commotion going over there now in these countries. And... Uh, you know, I just wonder what's going on. So I finally left back, came back from America. I cataloged all this stuff and just sat on it for a very long time. Uh, Rosemary was visiting, and um, and I started talking about the gin. And uh, she said, well, a lot of it sounds like it's um, um, things like leprechauns and, and a lot of, you know, correlation between a lot of this stuff, UFO abductions. Uh, dimensional beings, and so on. So I put my information together in her research, and um, eventually, you know, that's how the vengeful gin came about. It was a much longer story, but uh, thought I'd shorten to give you guys a break. Wow. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, nothing short of fascinating. Hmm. Um, of course, my sort of cynical question is, if there's a cave called, you know, cave where the gin live... Uh, Majas al Jin. Why don't yeah? Why don't the uh, why doesn't the government just go there to catch them? Well, evidently um, that part of the Oman government. I don't know if they catch them there. That was a place where they enter our world, and I I don't know. They were looking for these portals, but I did find out later. Now get this: after I went, that cave was practically it was not known very well. Um, after I left, um, uh, in, in the year, um, about, probably about eight years after I left, the Omen government opened up that cave for tourist attractions. Okay? And people would go there and visit the cave. They even filmed two car commercials there. Then, 
about two years ago, the government of Oman, the ministry, closed down the cave to everybody. They closed down the cave to everybody, and if you go there now, you will be arrested. And the reason was, oh, we don't want anybody getting hurt there. But there must be some other, you know, um, motive behind it. One of the things, you know, that yeah, I wait, hear how, is how long, that... How long was it open? They, it was open for a number of years. And they didn't care and about fact, safety then? From the time that I was there, I was only like about the 20th person in, in that cave around that area. By the time I was there to the time they close it, you know, I hear they've had over, they had over 100,000 visitors. Then all of a sudden they closed it. And you say, well, if it's the meeting place of the gin. Well, maybe the gin kind of backed off and um, now it's their meeting place again. You have to remember, gin live very long lifespans. So a period of inactivity to us may seem like a long time, 20 or 30 years. But according to the gin lifespan, that's like, you know, you're taking a 10-minute nap. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, I don't know if you have information about this, but have you learned why it is that they come into our world if they fear us and hate us in the first place? What do they need here? Well, not all of them hate us. Some of us, some of them tolerate us, it seems. And some of them are indifferent. Some of them are fascinated with us. But the story is this, is that before human beings existed on this planet, um, the race of jinn lived here. And the word jinn, by the way, is an Arabic word. It means hidden. It's because we don't know what they call themselves. This is the name that, you know, the people in the Middle East gave this race of beings a long time ago, before Solomon's time. And also, the idea of jinn existed before Islam. It sort of like got absorbed into the Islamic belief, but it goes back to ancient Persia, goes back as far as recorded history in the Middle East. The story is, is that the jinn were the masters of this world. They were the stewards of planet Earth. They lived in this physical reality here. They were not like humans. They did not, in the sense that they were not always physical beings. They could alternate their their, their bodies to be physical, and they're shapeshifters, uh, for a better word. Now, the jinn became very jinn race became very powerful. They designed technology. They, they became powerful. They were able to manipulate matter and energy. They started polluting the planet and warring with themselves. Because, uh, see, we have countries and so on and so on, but jinns have clans. And I'll get into that a little later, about how the jinn, you know, structure is arranged. But um, they were on the verge of self-destruction. Now, according to the Quran and the Persian legends, Allah, God, did not want the jinn to be exterminated from the universe. So he sent an army of angels to take them out of planet Earth and put them in a place where they could do no harm to any other beings or to themselves. Now, this resulted in a war between the angels, a higher order of being, and jinn. Some jinn were very powerful. They achieved power that was just almost angelic in nature. 
So the war, according to, you know, the belief lasted a thousand years. Whether it did or not, I don't know. Eventually, the Jin lost. They accepted their exile into this parallel world where they exist today. Now, most of the Jin um, repented for their ways. Some of them became, you know, they, they, they became religious in nature. Some of them are happy to, just to live with their families and so on. Some jinn were ordered to stay in this world to purify it and to help human beings establish themselves in this world. So this is an interesting thought because there are many legends from across the world of how gods or supernatural beings in the Middle East, they were called jinn. In other countries, they were called other things. Helped mankind, gave mankind language, taught them technology until they were established enough to go on their own. Now, according to the legend, some jinn became very resentful. And as a result, they became very dangerous and very powerful. They were imprisoned. They were imprisoned in caves, under the water, and so on and so on. Some of the jinn, to escape imprisonment, fled and hid on places, in isolated places on planet Earth, where they remain today. This could be why some areas are noted across the world for a great deal of paranormal phenomena and to be haunted. Well, if they, if now, they can be, if they can be uh, vanquished like that, what, what is their form when they're not shape-shifted into humans and things like that? What is their natural form? Well, no one knows what their natural form is. I don't think it is a form, because according to the Koran, angels were made from the purest of light, photonic energy. Human beings were made from the mud and the clay, which is matter. And the jinn were made from smokeless fire. Now, the idea of smokeless fire is a plasma. So, and that would fit in. Light, energy, matter, atoms, plasma, the state in between matter and energy. And it seems that jinn, in their natural form, they are like... Um, a shape, a plasma, glowing, beautiful gas, you know, light that's encompassed by a magnetic field. So they can alternate their magnetic fields, I believe, to take on different shapes. But it requires energy to take on these shapes. They can rearrange the ionized atoms in their body to take to take the structure of different um, atomic structures, uh, different elements to take on different shapes. They could look like animals. Um, according to Islam, one of their favorites, they like to come into this world on, on notice, so they would take the form of a dog, a snake, or something like that. But they also take on human form. And they say that one of the problems they have taking on human forms is the eyes. They can't duplicate our eyes 100%. And if they can, it always reverts back to a jinn sort of eye. And um, when jinn take on physical form, uh, one of the forms they say they like to take, if you look at some of the old drawings of jinn, it's almost reptilian in nature, almost demonic looking in nature. Uh, but they can take on human form also. So... 
um, uh, but they can keep that form for a certain number of time. I don't know if all jinn have this capability, but some do. But now, according to the legend, you know, according to the Islam, there are no fallen angels. Okay, angels were made from the purest of light. They're uncorruptible. They have no free will. They can only do what they're told by God, by Allah. Jinn and humans have free will. Jinn are called God's other people. They're like the human race's older brothers. Nasty brothers, it could be it sometimes. But anyway, um, so one jinn who became very powerful when human beings were made, let's go by the when human beings appeared on this earth, according to the Quran, Allah said, God said to the angels, Bow before my new creation, and you will serve my new creation. Adam, man. And the angels bowed. And God said to the jinn, You will give up your space for my new creation. You will serve my new creation. Bow before my new creation. And most of the jinn did. But one jinn did, one jinn did not. And his name was Iblis. Iblis was very powerful. Had the power of an angel. And he said to God, according to the legend, I'm not going to bow before this thing. I am made from the most beautiful of fire. And my people were made first. And I will not bow, and I will not serve this thing. And God said, go to hell. So Iblis was cast out, but he said to God, I will spend the rest of my days until Judgment Day showing you that this creature that you created is not worthy of you, and I will corrupt them. And God said, give it your best shot. So Iblis was cast out of paradise. Jinn were cast out of the physical world and put into this parallel world, which is called the Kaf, where they live. And um, the story is, is that most Jinn, you know, they're happy to be at peace. But Iblis in time corrupted more and more Jinn. And um, there's a special order of jinn, a special renegade section of jinn that have one purpose in mind. And that's to destroy the human race so that the jinn can once again move back into our world. Now, there's well, is, also- there, is, is there any evidence that that's part of the deal? Like God's like, all right, if you can show me they suck, then you can have the world back. Well, he didn't say that. God says, I will let you try it to show that you're wrong until Judgment Day. You have until that time. But you, you will leave everyone alone who is loyal to me. In other words, people who are, you know, uh, follow the ways of God or whatever. Now, this is all in the Quran. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so this is, these are things that come from ancient Persian beliefs. So they're historical in nature, sort of like you read the Bible. But you see, in the Christian Bible, Iblis is replaced by Lucifer. So... In the Christian Bible, the fallen angels um, uh, uh, who, who did, did, did not want to bow before man are fallen angels. But in the Quran and the, the Persian, you know, the ancient Persian texts that precede the Quran, um, 
they, the fallen ones are not fallen angels, they're jinn. So in Islam, over in the Middle East, when they talk about devils, they're not talking about fallen angels who became demons, they're talking about evil jinn. Okay, and, but which came first, the, uh, the Bible or the Quran? The Bible. Well, the New Testament, you know, the Old Testament. The Old Testament. So wh- yeah. why is it prominently figured in the Old Testament, do you think? Well, it is, but it doesn't talk about, um, um, they don't talk about jinn as the jinn. That's an Arabic word. But they do talk about certain entities, like a zazel, who is identified as a jinn. Azazel, it's thought that Azazel is the Judaic interpretation of his Iblis, and that he's not an angel, and he's not a human. Now, according to archaeologists, according to beliefs in the Middle East that they found, as they said that the people in the Middle East, in the ancient Middle East 5,000, 4,000 years ago, classified beings. If you, were, if you were not a human, and if you were not an angel, they, they were... Everything else was considered jinn. So it's an interesting history that most Westerners have no knowledge about whatsoever. Yeah, and do, does it tie in uh, directly, do you think, to fairy folklore? Well, I think it does because, you know, when you look at the idea of fairies and what they do, I mean, it's very similar to jinn. Now, there's a class of jinn that had been identified as green jinn. These are very young jinn, a jinn with low power. They seem to be like um, playful. They can be very deadly at times if you, you cross them, but they seem to be more fascinated with humans because they're younger. They don't remember, you know, what happened in the old days. They're younger. Maybe when they're younger, I would say thousands of years old. But um, they seem to act more like our idea of fairies. And the thing is, is that, you know, with a djinn, yes, a djinn can take you to his world and you may never return. Fairies do the same thing. Fairies also claimed that they had this world before human beings, and they were pushed out by human beings. So the story translates from fairies to jinn, also leprechauns and things like that, also in, in demonic entities. They can classify into this evil faction of jinn. Now, one thing about you know going back to the jinn in um, in in the Judaic belief. King Solomon's mind was made, was built, King Solomon's temple, the great temple in the cities were built by people. But in the Quran, the building was, of the great temple and the moving of the stones in the great cities was done by jinn. And the story is, is that Solomon found a way to control the jinn that were on the planet, and he enslaved them. Instead of saying, you know, be good, do this for me, and so on and so on, he enslaved the jinn, and he put them to work. And they complained. And they were in slavery for, for many, many years, serving Solomon. And later on, those jinn that became very, very resentful, that were dangerous, Solomon imprisoned them in various rings, crystals, and so on. Now, over, and, and also bottles, brass bottles that were encased with a mesh of magnetic iron. Now, think about this. One of the things they say that hurts gin is iron. 
but a special type of iron, magnetite. If you're a being that's composed of plasma and your body is contained by a magnetic field, plasmas are very susceptible to magnetic fields. So theoretically, these creatures could be contained or repelled by powerful magnetic fields or magnetic fields in themselves. Over in um, the Arabian Sea, fishermen over there, when they throw their nets in and they bring up an old bottle that's sealed, they don't say, oh my gosh, look at this, it's so old, I bet you I can cash it in and get a lot of money. They throw it back in because they're afraid it's the prison of a very nasty djinn who's looking to escape and cause trouble. Humans wrote the Quran. humans wrote the, the Bible, uh, if we don't know anything about jinn world now, how did they know so much about it then and this relationship that the jinn had with God, this God that, that presumably spoke to people back then? I mean, where did all of that dynamic of God, angels, jinn, where did that go? If that truly is something that humans had a sense of, a history of, uh, where did it go? Why, why are these people not talking to us anymore? Where did the jinn go? No, where did where did Allah, as uh, a being who communicates with us, go? Where did um, uh, how did they how do they have this knowledge to begin with? If they don't, well, maybe they still are communicating. I don't know. Maybe people stop listening. I don't know. Well, I mean, like um, you you had spoken to uh, the old man in the mosque who who knew a lot. Yeah, about of course, that information was passed down through many generations. Right. That's what I'm saying. Where where did that line get cut off? Is there any? Do you know anything about that? Where where did the line? Get drawn where it's. No, I imagine you see a, a long time ago when um, you know when Solomon was um, enslaving the jinn. Um, according to it, say he learned quite a bit from the jinn, and I think a lot of these stories were passed down uh, throughout history. But you have to watch out because if you go over there and you talk to some people, there's a lot of you know mysticism, a lot of supernatural mumbo jumbo put in with the idea of jinn also. They also believe that, um, you know, I, I, mean, I remember what somebody told me, and I, I, talking about, I was talking about UFOs, I was talking about ghosts and the idea of the relationship. And one, one person told me who was a, a, a Muslim cleric, he said, he said, my friend, and he looked at me and he smiled, he says, there are no UFOs. He said, there are no ghosts. He said, there are only jinn. So, you know, this is the idea, but, you know, these ideas have been passed down, but a lot of it has been distorted over the years. It's like, you know, who, who wrote the Bible? Who gave the information for the Bible in the fall of Lucifer and so on and so on? Same way over there, it was passed down. But there seems to be, you know, more solid information historically over there about Jid. And um, it's not a question of, you know, do they really exist? The majority of people... They are very real, and um, they believe they are returning, coming back into this world. And uh, do they know why I, they're afraid of us? If since they're well, they're afraid powerful? of us because we have a very violent nature. But can't and they, one can't of they the overcome things, that? Aren't they? Aren't they more like super people than we are? Jin? Yeah. Well, jinn have have great have powers. It depends upon the jinn. You know, the older the jinn, like humans. Um, the longer they live, the more knowledge they acquire. Jinn aren't born 
with uh, the power to do anything they want. They have to learn how to do it like humans learn a profession. They seem to be able to take the elementary particles of matter, the strings, and re-vibrate the strings to create certain element, recreate certain elementary particles to create certain forms of matter. This is much how they do it. For example, in the old legends, it was thought to be magic. And a jinn would say, you know, uh, I'll give you what you want, but in turn, you're going to have to pay me what I owe when it's due me. And it will say, okay, you want gold? They'll pick up lead in their hand and open their close their hand and open their hand and there's gold. And you know what? The, and, and of course, it's considered magic. But today, in the new idea of theoretical physics, we know that all matter is composed. All these elementary particles are composed of strings. The way these strings vibrate and create these energy cells determines what type of elementary particle is formed. By rearranging these elementary particles and changing the vibration of the string, we can theoretically change one form of matter to another. Of course, we don't have the technology to do it, but the jinn being a much older race perhaps do know how to do it, and since they are not physical matter, since they are not energy, since they are composed of a plasma, which has energy in it, type of energy in it, they could perhaps get right down into the molecular structure of substances and change it. But according to what I understand, for gin to do this, it requires a certain amount of energy. So the more energy they expel, they don't have limitless power. They can do certain things, but they become exhausted and have to rest and have to build up their own energy reserves to do things. One of the things that I heard that Jin like to do is they love, one of the things they envy human beings about is that physical sensations. They don't have it. So there are stories in the Middle East which are quite interesting where a Jin would appear um, in front of a young man, let's say, who just got married to a beautiful wife. And he will say to the man, let's make a deal. You let me have your body for a certain length of time, and I will give you three wishes, whatever you want, money and so on. And the story you know, goes, and this, if, you, if you look up on the internet now with the glorious thing of the internet getting all this information. There's a place called the Jinn Forum, which has all of these stories coming from the Middle East of still interaction with Jinn. And in this particular story, the Jinn enters, the young man says, fine. The Jinn enters his body and, you know, goes, enjoys sex and enjoys eating and drinking. But uh, during one session, the Jinn gets very violent when someone and kills him. Of course, now, the guy gets arrested, and the jinn said, I'm not hanging around anymore, so he leaves the body. The guy wakes up in court, and he's being tried for murder, and he tries to say that a jinn made him do it. And that's a defense you see quite a bit over there. You know, the devil made me do it. And a jinn took over my body, and he killed, and I had no control over it. Well, you see this over and over again on this jinn form out of these cases that are coming out of especially Saudi Arabia and a number of Arabic countries. Also, a jinn will 
possess a body. And the thing is, is that according to what they say, the jinn will not enter the body completely, but attach itself to the body because it's afraid of being trapped inside the human body, which it doesn't want to be. And at times, the jinn will be very unruly and will take the body by force. And they call in a Muslim cleric. And the cleric doesn't exercise the jinn. Jinn cannot be exercised, you know, by holy water and all that stuff there. The cleric will sit down and talk to the jinn and make a deal and say, how long do you plan to be in this body? And the jinn will say, well, maybe two weeks, three weeks, and they'll say, no, let's make a deal. You take the body for one week, behave yourself, and then that's it. Do you agree and agree with Allah and all that stuff? And the jinn might say, okay, that's a deal. Now, if the jinn doesn't leave after a week and decides that it doesn't want to leave the body, you know what the next step is? The next step is the cleric brings in these two big guys with sticks and they start beating the body, <laughs> beating the body to beat the jinn out. Because supposedly, while in attached to the body, the jinn can feel physical sensation and pain. So they beat the body so that the jinn will leave. And uh, you have all of these things over there. But another thing is going on in this country, too. There's a, there are a number of people who claim to be demonologists and they're involved in exorcism and it's becoming quite popular. They're finding out that there are certain types of possession cases that they're going to where the rituals, the Catholic rituals, do not work and that um, they know that they're dealing with something else rather than, let's say, a demon or fallen angels, which I don't know if I really believe in. But, um, you know... They could be dealing with jinn because the jinn presence is becoming more and more prominent, it seems. And, you know, a lot of paranormal phenomena, as we see it, could be the result of, of jinn. And I like to look at jinn not from the religious supernatural angle, but a race of ancient beings that are transdimensional in nature that have interacted with our world from time to time and are once again making their presence known. But they keep themselves hidden. They take on many different forms, many different guises, so that we won't know exactly who and what they are. And what their actual purpose is, I don't know 100%, but... You know, it really can't be that great because they seem to be spying on us. One of the things I heard that they're very afraid of is technology. They feel that certain weapons and certain technology that we have invented could actually hurt them and their people where they live. So they see us as a threat that way. There are many reports popping up. Rosemary's getting quite a few of them, especially of shadow people appearing in areas of high-tech areas, as if looking over the technology. Reports of shadow people more and more becoming the number one paranormal incident, shadow people, coming into people's rooms and looking at them at night while they're sleeping as if trying to attach themselves. Now, the person sleeping, when they wake up, they see this being there, it usually vanishes like it doesn't want to be seen. 
but before they wake up, sometimes they feel paralyzed and they feel as if something is attaching themselves to them, trying to get information. Where do they attach to? Well, according to what I understand, you know, um, they attach uh, to the to the, the brainstem, and they like almost can download information that way, but they don't enter the body completely. So. This is what they believe. You see, they believe that jinn can attach themselves or enter a body partially and cause illness. Now, you think about this. If jinn are, in fact, created by mag- beings of mag- created by magnetic fields, the induction of the magnetic field into the human body could cause a breakdown in the immune system and the cellular structure. And we know that. If you're, in, you're near an electromagnetic pulse and you're near a very strong magnetic field, it could have dire effects on your health. So over the Middle East, for many, many years, they believed that jinn can cause ill health by attaching themselves to a human for any particular length of time. They can cause a variety of illnesses, including cancer. So... You know, a lot of this stuff is fascinating, and like I said, it's really untouched in the Western world for paranormal researchers. And when paranormal researchers investigating case, investigate a case, I don't care if it's an abduction, I don't care if you're a ghost hunter or a Bigfoot hunter, you know, you have to take into consideration that of the jinn idea in order to really you know, fully get an understanding of what might be going on. I mean, you just can't discount the idea because you think of the jinn as, you know, Aladdin's lamp and I dream of genie on TV. Um, well, let me ask so- you this, and then I'll uh, throw it on over to Jeff. Um, so, well, part one is, do you now relate this to your work in the Hudson Valley? And then part two of that question is, if so, um, do you know enough about um, the mechanics of what they're doing in, in terms of, okay, now they're turning into smoke, now they're a shadow person, now they're, you know, why they do these things? I mean, it, does it affect your research other than saying, well, now I've got this new label I can put on the Hudson Valley paranormal stuff called the gin? Can you actually label it and then go in and look at the specific paranormal incidents in and relate a reason for those incidents where otherwise they wouldn't have made sense? Well, if you take into account the idea of a dimensional entity, which I was led slowly into, the idea of you know the other dimensions and the entities that exist there, it starts to make more sense. But I wouldn't put a, a gin label on everything in the paranormal or in the Hudson Valley. I don't know for sure. You see, whenever you're dealing with gin, they stay hidden. So you really don't know what you're dealing with until they accidentally reveal themselves. And some of them have egos like human beings, and some of them um, like to play around. But you can identify certain actions, I believe, as being gin in nature, because they're almost like human. There are many houses, for example, up in uh, the Hudson Valley in Putnam, where we've been investigating where there's a lot of paranormal activity. And... Um, um, and it's something like as if something in these places don't want human beings around. And we've actually got some very interesting EVP 
in um, those particular areas. It seems that, you know, jinn sometimes will communicate with you. Um, in one case, in, in an EVP, EVP session, the entity identify themselves as being jinn. He said, oh, you know, are ghosts here? Are demons here? And he says, no, jinn are here. I mean, this came through clearly on some of the EVP. And I've been working on a lot of different devices and so on that um, to enhance EVP and to study EVP. Because, you know, sometimes jinn will communicate with humans. They, some jinn find humans fascinating. But there are areas in the Hudson Valley, like, you know, some of the areas that you've been to, Jeremy, some of the chambers and stuff. These could be markers as places where the dimensional barrier is thin. And one of the things that can use that is probably jinn. Now, I'm just saying that where the jinn exist, jinn are there. They're dimensional beings. But they could be, like our planet that has a variety of life forms, there could be a variety of life forms in this other dimension also that borders our own. And one thing also, when we look at something, we kind of look at the jinn and try to lump it into one mentality. This is not the case. They are individuals. There are different groups of jinn that act differently, that have different agendas, that have different likes, different dislikes. They're very much like human beings in that nature. They have a tendency to be, you know, happy, sad, violent, angry, kind at times. And, you know, we usually say that there are three types of jinn, the good, the bad, and the very bad. Um, so when we factor in the jinn and we consider the idea of a jinn being dimensional beings, um, it actually makes a lot of the paranormal more sensible. I mean, it puts more structure into the idea of investigating the paranormal when the jinn are factored into the equation. Phil, I'm curious, just in um, sitting here listening to all this, how do you... Um as a guy who's been studying this for a very long time, the paranormal in general, will it be ghosts, UFOs, uh, uh, and even your, your locations up in, up in upstate New York? How do you, uh, you, you've seen a lot of envelopes that the paranormal gets put into in all your years with this. So how is the gin any different from any other envelope, you know, that people would put an enigmatic other into? Well, it's not. But you have to take into consideration, which I, you know, I believe, that what we call the paranormal, whether it's from UFOs all the way to ghosts or whatever, mythical beings, Bigfoot, or whatever. I mean, I don't believe there's one explanation for it all. I believe that it's a very complex, it's a number of causes that cause the manifestations that we call the paranormal. Um, but I do believe that the jinn and the jinn interaction with the world and the jinn dimension can account for a, 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 a not the majority of the percentage of it all, but a, a pretty good percentage of it all. I think as Westerners, we have to factor in the idea of the jinn because there's not one solid answer for explaining all the paranormal. Human beings like to put everything into nice, neat little categories. And what we're dealing with here is not a simple thing. There's not one simple answer. It's a multifaceted phenomenon, what, all these paranormal experiences. Right. 
Well, in studying the the whole uh, gin envelope that we're talking about, uh, how much have you been able to to find out about this? Uh, Pakistani nuclear scientist, uh, I think his name, if I'm going to pronounce this right, Sultan uh, Bashrudin Mahmood. Have you come across his name at all? Yeah, I have. I mean, this is a guy who is a nuclear scientist and told the Wall Street Journal, of all people, that, um, you know, that described in the Quran that, that these are beings made of fire and that. Uh, they could be tapped to solve an energy crisis. And he said, uh, and this is a quote, I guess, says, I think that if we develop our souls, we can commu- develop communication with them. Uh, every new idea has its opponents, but there's no reason for this controversy over Islam and science because there is no conflict between Islam and science. So, um, I mean, that's how serious they take it. Yes, I know. I mean, this is what I'm trying to say, that in the Islamic world, you know, it's not whether or not the jinn exists. They do exist. And a jinn, you see, they're very aware of what goes on in our world. Not all of them. You know, some of them don't even bother with us. But there is, you know, a, a faction of jinn that are watching the human race. And they would take that article in the Wall Street Journal as sort of like, um, um, you know, these, these human guys, they want to capture us and imprison us again. Oh, Okay. Okay. I mean, this is what they consider, you know, human beings. Anything that's different from humans, you know, human beings consider a threat. And, um, you know, Jin must look at us and the technology that we invented, and, and, and it makes them probably amazed that uh, these limited beings were able to build things like computers and cars and aircraft and all of these deadly weapons. Now, but if you look back at the legend once again, Jinn were on this planet. They were the first race on this planet, according to the legend. They polluted the planet. They made war with each other. They killed each other. They were in danger of extermination. Doesn't this sound like human beings today? Yeah. I mean, mean, so, but you see, this generates a belief that you know, uh, in the Middle East, that human beings better straighten themselves out because human beings could be replaced or put into an isolated parallel dimension and a new race of beings could emerge on this planet. And someday, you know, to these beings, these whoever, these new race of people, we could be the jinn. Right, right. Well, I mean... Uh... I mean, when you're looking at all this, does it does it cross your mind that? Uh, I mean, especially when you're talking about the the whole thing of uh, of them possessing a body, and then you know the 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 holy man goes in to see the person who was possessed by the jinn and strikes a bargain, saying you you got a week uh, and you're out. I mean, uh, and you mentioned the whole thing of the devil made me do it, that sort of thing. I mean, don't don't you as a critical thinking guy, you've got to look at that and go. You know, people living in a a somewhat I don't know I don't know how you'd call this, but a a, a fairly regimented uh, religion, a fairly regimented society, uh, having the opportunity to partake of sex, drugs, and rock and roll for a while, and using this as basically an, an excuse. I mean, and of course, yeah. You know, and once somebody gets into that kind of a role, who wants to go back to? Um, to, to daily life after you've gone, you know, into this hedonistic behavior. 
and so when you get beat with some sticks, I guess that kind of has the effect. All right, all right, I'll go, I'll go. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, this is what they believe. They believe in beating the body to get out of the gin. None of this mm-hmm. thing but prayers and making the sign of the cross. And uh, gin usually laugh at that, but they believe in beating the body if the gin will not leave. They will try to negotiate with the gin to leave. Hmm. And most of these gin, by the way, are renegade gin. See, uh, in the gin structure, gin have um, the smallest unit is the family, and the family are made of people who are de- gin who are directly related to each other. A jinnaya, a male and a female with um, a, a one offspring. And um, jinn families, they're all, some of the families are related to each other, cousins or whatever. Um, they belong to clans. And in the clan, the entire clan is controlled by one jinn called the blue jinn, who are very old and very powerful. All of these clans have allegiance to a jinn king. And I don't know, it's not clear from my research, if there are several jinn kings or one jinn king. And now, jinn are arranged according to power. Green jinn are the youngest, the least powerful. Yellow jinn are in between. They could be family leaders. And blue jinn are the most powerful, and the black jinn are considered kings. They very interact with anything except themselves, but we learned that other jinn give tribute to this king. And uh, they owe allegiance to the king, and the families owe allegiance to the clan leader. There are an offshoot of jinn that you can call terrorists or whatever. They have been, been identified as red jinn. They only follow Iblis, the fallen jinn. They look at Iblis as sort of a freedom fighter, sort of like a messiah that's come to give them what they were rightfully due them. And uh, they are the renegades that are are causing a lot of the problems with human beings because their 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 main idea is destroy the human race. While other jinn really don't have that idea, they would like to see the human race gone, but. They don't want to destroy human beings because if they have, jinn have religious beliefs like people. They believe that they're going to be held accountable at the end of time or judgment day for every action that they've done, just like a lot of religions believe in this world. There are some jinn who are atheists. They don't even believe in that stuff. There are some jinn, they say, who, who go more towards the Christian faith. Some go through the Islamic faith. Some are Buddhist. Some have no religion at all. Some worship Iblis, which in our society is like worship being a devil worshiper. Right. So their structure, they have courts. And so on. If a, if, a, if a jinn from a clan or family gets out of line doing something in this world that he's not supposed to do, because it's forbidden by most of the jinn to interact with humans, the jinn will never give his identity. He will try to be stealth about what he's doing here and what he's doing, because if you find out the jinn's name, theoretically, you can report him to the clan member, and he will be punished for his actions. So they have sort of like a check and balance system 
but the only ones that um, you know aren't the, the devils are these red jinn, according to the legend, that are the followers of Iblis. These are the ones that are infiltrating our world, which many people in the Middle East believe, and that are causing a lot of problems. And they have to be held accountable also. Some of the jinn believe in the idea that angels are up there, because it's in their legend. And some of them are afraid that if they get out of line, an angels will intervene. Some jinn don't even believe in angels. And they're like humans. You know, some of them like chocolate ice cream, some of them like vanilla ice cream. And so <laughs> why, did they get rid of the, why did God get rid of the jinn to put us here if they're just the same as us? <laughs> it's like the, they're the exact same thing as humans. It's just they've been punished and we haven't yet. Yeah, well, and also they live longer. Now, you know, many religions believe, like the Buddhist religions believe, that human beings live in a body for a limited amount of time, and then they're reborn into a new body. And a lot of New Age beliefs believe that also, the idea of reincarnation. Reincarnation is also in the Christian religion, but it seems to be very reserved for extraordinary characters. Um, now, jinn, according to what I understand, they live incredibly long lifespans but they don't reincarnate. And their main goal is to ascend to a higher plane of existence. If they don't do it in their lifespan, because they don't reincarnate, they just, you know, die. I mean, you know. So, I mean, you know, they have their own beliefs. And a lot of these beliefs have infiltrated into our world in past history and seems to be responsible for a lot of our religious beliefs. Now, look at the Bible, Moses and the burning bush. Well, some people would think that the idea of jinn being fire, smokeless fire, the burning bush that did not consume the bush, but was there, could have been a jinn. The pillar of fire that led the Israelites out of Egypt and blocked the Egyptian army, a pillar of fire. Jinn are said to be beings of fire. Is this actually God, angels intervening, or jinn intervening with our history? You see, these are things that should be considered. Well, what about, I mean, it, when we're talking about tandems with angels, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Christianity, I mean, can you talk a little bit about, like, I, I think I'm going to pronounce this wrong, too, but Karin or Karin? Did you come across that at all? For what is that? A Korean is uh, almost like every person is, is signed one's own special jinn, which oh, is yeah, also called a the, Korean. Uh, the, the companion jinn. Yeah. yeah. Everybody is, uh, that's almost like, uh, you see, they believe that over in the Middle East, um, people have companion jinns. These are jinn who are fascinated with humans, and they're sent actually to study humans and to learn from humans so that they can bring the information back to the jinn world so they can learn more about us. Some of these companions sometimes interact with humans a little too much. Some of them are assigned during chi the childhood of a human, and then they disappear as the child turns into adult. They are like you know, companion jinn. And I don't know if I really believe in that, but I do believe in the aspect that certain clans of jinn might be interested, you know, to keep taps on us to find out how we think and what the new generations think and what's going on inside our minds. 
Um, but, uh, yeah, they do believe that. They also believe that sometimes jinn will come into a house and inhabit a house, and uh, they have to deal with the jinn in order to jinn, for the jinn to leave the house. Mm. Um, also in history, there's also a thing that a jinn, if it takes on human form, it can actually mate with a human to produce a child. Now, in the Islamic belief, this is an abomination. Because according to the beliefs, all the children that are born from the jinn-human combination are born with great power. They're very aggressive. They have uh, great control over influencing human beings. And they're sociopaths. And they're sterile. In other words, they're almost psychotic to the day. Whatever they want to get done for their own benefit, they don't care who does it. Now, according to, um, the, according to the Quran, Sheba, whose name was um, Iliquake, or there was a number of different names for her, the Queen of Sheba, her mother was a Janaya, and her father was a human. And she was the offspring of a jinn and a human. Now, you look at her history. By the time she was 15 years old, she was not in line for the throne. She eliminated everybody in that in, in, uh, was in front of her. All of her cousins, all of her half-brothers, killed them all to ascend to the throne. And she had so much control over people's minds that she was able to corrupt King Solomon. And Solomon's um, ministers were warning him that she was the crossbreed between a Janiya and a human, and she's very dangerous, she's an abomination. And he was so fascinated with her that he said, I don't believe this, Come on, she is not, she looks beautiful to me, she's so on and so on. So they said, well, you can tell if she's a jinn, the offspring of a jinn. Her legs will be hairy. So Solomon had the palace of his throne room with, made of crystal. So it would look like water. And she, the Queen of Sheba came to visit, and she, she lifted up her skirt because she thought the throne room had a, a little bit of water, and Solomon, under the, uh, under the crystal, put water, and he put fish under there so it would look like it was a little pond that was approaching to his throne. She lifted up her skirt, and he looked at her skirt, and he noticed her legs were bare. They were clean, no hair. And he threw his ministers out. But she was so smart, according to the legend of the Koran, that she shaved her legs before she came to him because she knew exactly <laughs> what he was going to do. Now, wow. she ended up corrupting Solomon and causing his downfall. And she did it on purpose, according, because she knew that Solomon enslaved the jinn. And one of the jinn that Solomon enslaved, that worked, that he worked right to, you know, exhaustion and death, was Sheba's mother. Mm. So, according to the legend, she got her revenge. Wow. So, I mean, you know, you find the jinn in the legends like this, and so on and so on. But, you know, in the Islamic belief... Sheba was a uh, an offspring of a jinn and a human, but in the other stories that appear in um, the Judaic version, you know, she was just a, a, a very seductive, beautiful young girl who corrupted him.
Well, I'll, I'll tell you one thing. If hairy legs are, uh, are the sign, then I could take you to a bar in Baltimore. It's packed with gins. Oh, uh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, well, when you're talking about um, uh, King Solomon, uh, is there, I mean, number one, is there any knowledge out there or any writings out there that say what he had on them or, or how he assumed this dominance over them? Uh, because they worked – he died leaning on his staff <laughs> and they didn't know he was dead, you know, until, you know, it's, it's, it's written that uh, God sent a creature to crawl out of the ground and gnaw at Solomon's staff until his body fell over. And then, then they knew he's dead. So we don't have to do this anymore. So clearly he had him right under his thumb. So what was, what kind of leverage did he have on these things? Well, there are many stories. Okay. There are different versions uh, of the story of Solomon. We really don't have too much information about Solomon. We know that he wrote a book on how to control the jinn and other demonic and angel and angelic entities. Today they're called as the Grimoire and the Key of Solomon, which um, nobody knows exactly who wrote them. They were like, you know, not the original ones. Maybe somebody just made it up. But according to, he had a magic ring. And this ring, with this ring, he was able to controlled the jinn, and uh, I don't know, maybe it was like Green Lantern, I don't know, but anyway, <laughs> I mean, if you think about that, a, green, a ring that was given to him by God and the angels, a higher order of being, maybe it was some type of technology that generated an electromagnetic pulse, mm-hmm. so all he had to do was point it at a jinn, and, and he could either destroy him, encase him, or or whatever, but uh, according to the story, you know, I mean, the jinn came and bowed to him. And those jinn that were, um, even the jinn king appeared in for, before Solomon, and Solomon was able to control him, and he ordered the jinn king to stand behind him and enforce his will, and if any other jinn appear and they seem resentful or do not want to follow him, you will enforce Solomon, he will enforce Solomon's will. And the king of the jinn did. And those jinn that were very disobedient and very powerful, Solomon imprisoned them for all eternity. And, uh, of course, that comes into the fact, you know, the, the genies in the, in the lamps and the genies in the bottles and the genies in the magic rings and so on. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are quite a few versions of Solomon's demise and his interaction with Sheba and his interaction with the jinn. But there's one thing that's clear in the Quran: He worked the jinn until they died of exhaustion. And he showed no mercy to them, just like they were slave labor. And uh, this is what I think was carried on in the Islamic belief today of the jinn, is that the jinn are still very resentful from that time, and they're afraid that human beings have developed the technology again to enslave them. Hmm. enslave them and use them for their power. So our fear of them as being demonic or creatures that will hurt us with great power, it seems that their fear of us is just as great. There's a mutual fear between the two species. And uh, if these dimensional beings are out there and we call them whatever we want, jinn, jinn means hidden, I mean, uh, it seems that we're in for a collision. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's um let's fast forward up to modern day and uh 
you know, uh, I'll ask the same thing of this as I ask of UFOs and ghosts. Um, how much have you been privy to in the way of um, any sort of evidence of encounters in the modern day? How many people are – has anyone come forward and said, I've carried on a conversation with these things or I see them frequently or gotten pictures or – I mean, whatever kind of other evidence you could possibly gather. I mean, does is anything coming out of the Middle East or elsewhere that is uh, is is giving this thing uh, legs in sort of a paranormal sense? Yes, you have to uh, also consider that uh, jinn consider they want to make themselves hidden, so they'll take on like different identities and different guises. So it's very hard to put you know, a thumbnail, put your thumb on and say, well, this is gin activity. They do follow certain behavior patterns. Um, things that are happening in this country, you know, it's very possible that, you know, we, we, we hear about, you know, the UFO phenomenon, greys, and we hear about the reptilians. Some aspect of the UFO phenomena, even the abductions, seems, you know, seems to be something dimensional in nature, while something seems to be extraterrestrial in nature. Perhaps they're both responsible for the UFO phenomena. And uh, the dimensional aspect could be jinn. I mean, you know, taking on the guys that they're, you know, um, aliens uh, when they're actually inhabitants of this world. One of the things that interests me is the increase of shadow people sightings. They behave a lot like Jin would if they're watching us in this world. Information is coming out of the Middle East all the time. Jin are becoming popular again. And the reason is, I think, is because they're making themselves more known in the Middle East. And they're making themselves known in this world, but we're not identifying them as such. And um, uh, we have to consider that a lot of paranormal phenomena that we're seeing, poltergeists and so on, could be the result of these dimensional beings. And, you know, as I said, you can't look at them with a supernatural angle or a religious angle like they do in the Middle East. These are intelligent dimensional beings that are interacting with us and causing a lot of the phenomena that we see, either by accident or by intent. I'm sure it's both. When they inhabited the Earth, this is not only you know, regulated to the Middle East. This is, they inhabited the entire Earth. Well, to a certain degree, in, in, in the Mayan belief, they talk about beings like jinn, and I forget what they call them, but they were called and controlled to help build some of the great pyramids. The Mayans claimed that these supernatural beings came, and uh, they bear a direct ID to the jinn of the Middle East. And uh, in China, there are also, in Japan, there are ideas of these dimensional beings that coexist with humans that have interacted with the human being from time to time. They're not angels, they're not devils, there's something in between. So wherever you go around the world, if you study the ancient cultures and the beliefs, you see jinn coming up over and over again, but of course called by different names. But it could be the same race of beings. And the Middle East, by the way, in China, um, is where... 
um, you know, the centers of civilization were for, you know, many thousands of years before Europe, before the United States, and so on. So you would expect to see their presence more there because the historical, the history is longer in these countries. So we have a better chance of identifying their interaction with human beings going back thousands of years rather than other countries which um, have, have either lost their historical records or haven't been around that long or never right. kept them. Right. Well, in uh, at least in paranormal circles, and I think it's starting to be a little bit more recognized in UFO circles, there does seem to be, uh, at least in my mind, there seems to be a consistency of what surrounds the paranormal, the, the marginality, the anti-structural elements, the um, everything from uh, you know lights in the house to weird synchronicities to um, people in upheavals of complete life changes and that sort of things, births, deaths, marriages, divorces. Um, do we find that kind of similarity, that kind of tricksterish element in the gin lore as well? Oh yeah, very much. And you you have to consider, you have to remember that there are different types of gin at different levels. And a lot of the trickster element of the gin comes from the younger gin who like to play their favorite game, fool the human. I mean, um, so a lot of it you see the trickster element, yes. The Native Americans, you know, identify a being uh, called the trickster, and it behaves a lot like uh, a young jinn. So, um, you know, you see this throughout history in many cultures. And jinn are becoming popular. And I think, you know, uh, and even in the UFO search, the, the people who are involved with the UFO research are the, the most difficult ones to accept new ideas. And that seems strange. <laughs> I mean, Not telling us anything. I mean... <laughs> I mean I mean, not to offend anybody up there, but, you know, the, the late John Keel called UFO investigators the lepers of the paranormal. Right. And, but the thing is, is that I, I find this is true. Um, UFO investigators are hard to accept new ideas. Um, they, you know, they want to uh, act almost as if, like, you know, they're all scientific and they're trying to investigate UFOs uh, in a scientific fashion. There is no science in UFOs. Right. You, you have to use the scientific method in order to do a scientific investigation. And the scientific method breaks down considerably when you're talking about something that may not be even part of our own world. Right. And, and I have to say this to all paranormal investigators, including the UFO people. A new way has to be devised to study these new interactions of these forces that do not originate from our world. We have to develop new techniques to classify and approach and study this phenomena. Otherwise, we're just going to keep going around in circles. And as you know, everybody comes forward with an idea, and their idea is always right. And one of the things in UFO circles is that everybody argues because their ego is on the line. And, um, however, Rosemary Guiley went to the UFO conference in Kansas. That was just um, this last weekend in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, and, which I was originally invited, but I didn't go to. 
and she gave a presentation of the connection of jinn, shadow people, paranormal phenomena, and UFOs. And it went over really big. There were a lot of people. And also, reading the book, The Vengeful Jinn, we have got emails from a lot of Islamic people who are praising the book and saying, it's about time, it's all right on target, that UFOs and the people who deal with paranormal phenomena in the rest of the world start to accept the idea that jinn are real. Um, and also, um, you know, the Islamic nation in the United States also gave the book the thumbs up, saying that, you know, this is good to inform people about jinn and um, that there is more to the idea of jinn than meets the eye. And so the book has got some pretty good um, acceptance from the Islamic world. I was afraid when originally when the book was written that, you know, uh, uh, it would, people in the Muslim world would come and say, uh, you know, this is a bunch of crap. Right. Uh, because you know, they have deep-rooted beliefs that involve the jinn. But so far, the um, it's been all positive, which I'm grateful of. And um, um, and and so, you know, it is what it is. But we do have a website that we did put online to educate people about jinn. And all the questions you may have asked the jinn, there's a trailer there about the jinn. Um, it's www.jinuniverse.com. Okay. And you could actually leave your experiences that you think are jinn there, and either Rosemary or I will get it. But, you know, Jinn Universe is spelled with a G. That's the actual Islamic translation into English, D-G-I-N-N. Okay, we'll have that on our homepage as well, so... Um, well, I mean, what I, what I, what, yeah, what I, what I find, uh, I mean, really interesting about it is, is that, yeah, it's, it's a new thread to tug on. It's something else to kind of sink your teeth into, but when you get right down to it, it's kind of, it's, it's yet again, it's another wrinkle that really you don't find the end of it because they're hidden. They're potentially deceptive. They're elusive as hell, obviously. Um, I mean, all of this stuff, it's like, I mean, it, the way we've kind of approached this is, is looking at it as kind of an answer, but really, it's not really an answer at all. It's just another wrinkle. Well, it's uh, something to consider. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, we, I mean, to put it to you this way, I mean, we don't know any more about gin potentially than the ETHers would have to say about Zeta Reticulans. You know, well, I, I mean, think we have a little more information than that. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, you've got the ancient so, text, yeah. So far in history, and, you know, we have written records of jinn existence. We have, you know, information that dates back for a very long time, talking about the jinn culture and so on and so on. What we just have from, you know, UFOs and the Zeta Reticulans is, you know, just something that started a short time ago. Right. Um, so the information is out there. I, I haven't even touched on all the information. What I told you and what I told you, what I mentioned in the book, The Vengeful Jinn, is, is, is probably only about 40% of the information that I uncovered uh, in the Middle East. And you have to remember that I was sitting on this information since 1995, and I, I, and I didn't release any of it 
through all my other works and all my other books. I didn't even talk about it that much because I knew people in the Western world would have, originally back at that time, would have a hard time accepting this idea. Right. And um, now uh, I think that um, their people are more open. They're realizing that paranormal phenomena, including UFOs, is very complex. Everybody's going around in circles. And, you know, I don't want to put, you know, another, you know, uh, another circle in there to go around. But, you know, I introduced something that uh, should be considered as they are traveling around in a circle and stuff. Right, right. Sure. And say, sure. Yeah. This could be part of what I'm doing. Um, and like I said before, I don't believe there's one answer for anything that we call the paranormal or the UFO phenomena. I believe it's a multifaceted phenomena that we're looking at, we're calling the paranormal. And there are many explanations, and I believe that the jinn is just one of them, but I believe it's a considerable percentage of, of, of in comparison to the others. Right. Well, well, when we're talking about the UFO stuff, as it may, may or may not apply to the jinn, is there anything in the jinn uh, writing that speaks of discs or rods or this sort of thing? I mean, is there a symbolic connection there in some way? Yeah, the flying carpets. I mean, they were, you know, jinn were able to fly in the air. Um, they were able to take um, 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 disc-like shapes, and uh, they were able to fly in the air, and they were able to take people up with them. And, of course, you know, um, you know, when you see jinn are plasma beings, so that uh, you look up in the sky and you see this flat thing, disc-like thing going across the sky, you know, people identified it as a carpet. And that's where the flying carpets came from. Oh, nice. Well, I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me. It, you know, it's definitely another thing to pull on and, uh, and, and poke around with and, and try to make... Uh, or try to see rather the the correlations between all kinds of different phenomena and this stuff. Uh, I mean, it certainly seems like one of the older uh, threads that you could tug on that obviously hasn't been hasn't been touched on enough. Um, it's an untapped resource in the United States of the paranormal. Yeah, and I think right now it's 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 becoming a hot issue because right now there are a number of movies that are going to come out that focus on gin. Huh. And um, um, and and I think in the next couple of years, we are going to see a great emergence of interest in the gin. And of course, the side to that is that all of a sudden you're going to have you know gin experts appearing on TV and people exercising gin. And also, I mean, I've been contacted by a number of these reality shows. They they want to you know do gin now. And I said, you know, I've seen your show and I'd rather walk on broken glass. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me ask you something. Uh, you know, at least in this country, I would say, I would say in the past 20 years that I've noticed, I mean, I'm only going to, I'm going to be 44 soon. So that's all the longer I've been around, but at least in, the past 20 years, I could say, in this country, there's been a, an upheaval of belief with uh, uh, the New Age religions and, uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, to the point where we have New Age bookstores and New Age shops and this sort of thing. And 
and and I remember when back I don't know uh, again probably late eighties early nineties when these things started springing up they were like a real oddity, and now they're not so much of an oddity anymore. In fact, all of the major book chains have a new age section and all that sort of thing. When you're talking about Jin belief or Jin uh, accounts coming out of the Middle East. It, do you, is that more in line with the traditional belief, or is that more falling in line with what we would equate to like a New Age belief? I think it's both. Okay. Um, I, I, you know, I, I try to, you know, express what I've learned about the jinn and try to, you know, exclude as much of the, you know, religious and the magical mumbo jumbo out of it. But um, um, when jinn are in, the idea of jinn are finally infused into the Western world, I think people will start adding Western ideas to the to the concept, mm. um, the better understanding. But you know, I, I know for a fact that you know in the next couple of year year or so that the idea of of, of the jinn are going to be hot in this country. Hmm. Phil, can, can, can I ask you a question? Just going back to the the possession. Yeah. Um, it, is there uh, any rule about letting the person who is possessed out of their house? And do does is is the gin just partaking in a normal day of a person, or does the gin make them do wild wacky stuff? If they, they can do wild them? wacky stuff, you know, gin want physical sensation. They want to taste food. They don't. Gin, gin can take in food, but it doesn't sustain them. They take in, they take in forms of energy. And, um, but they like the idea of, the one thing they envy us is, is all the physical sensations humans can have. And, uh, they want, some of them want to experience that. So, um, you know, they go about the every day. I mean, they probably won't go to work. But they'll, you know, go out and drink alcohol and, you know, engage in sexual activity and probably stuff themselves to the, you know, go to the vomitorium or something. But um, they just want to experience, it seems, um, you know, the physical pleasures that humans have. And then are the laws relaxed for people who are gin-possessed or do, do they not apply? I mean, how does that work? Well, they're very strict. If you make a deal with a gin... Um, even if nothing happens, uh, you, you could be arrested. There are people over in some of the Arab countries who were accused of uh, conjuring jinn that were actually executed. Hmm. It's like, uh, it's like, no, you do not fool around with these. You do not do this. You do not interact with jinn. It's against law. And um, uh, yeah, there are people who've been jailed. There are people who've been put to death, accused of black magic with jinn. And uh, or dealing with gin that have been arrested, tortured, and put to death. Like I said, there's um, um, there's an Islamic site that where all this information comes over from the Middle East now, of all these newspaper clippings and stuff of interaction with gin. And every day there's a gin story of people interacting with gin and being arrested and being punished, being accused of 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 uh, dealing with the gin to go and harm somebody. I mean, it's getting crazy over there. It's like exploding with with gin stuff. Wow. Uh, I'm looking here on the web. There's a there's a, a rather lengthy paper written by a Dr. Abu Amina Bilal Phillips, and uh, it's uh, it's an essay on the gin. 
and Phil, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but this has got pretty much everything you've talked about on the show tonight. Um, not, not in as much depth, I don't think, but you know, there are demonic visions. In other words, there's a visionary aspect to this that people are having visions, uh, either brought on by Jin or I, I guess actual visual contact with one of these things. I mean, obviously when you went in this cave and, uh, and you you saw this green kind of I don't know coagulated mist or cloud, uh, and your 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 men topside heard this thing say "Get out of here! I'm going to kill you." Um, I mean that right there is pretty much a. Uh, uh, it, it sounds to me like had you had a camera on you, had you recognized what was going on, or had. You know, some some kind of uh, way to record this, um, you would have. I mean, you would have been right there with the camera on the edge of the hole, uh, looking at it. I mean, is there anything like that that's come forward to you uh, in, in poking around all this? Like, uh, is there unexplained mist, uh, a, a video, or uh, even? Uh, I mean, you talked about the uh, the shadow people. I mean, certainly there's there's quite a bit of photographic evidence out there of that. Um, but is there anything that isn't so, I don't know, deceptive or look the other way while I run this way? Is there anything, what's the best stuff that you've seen visually of this that you could say, I, I, I'm fairly confident that what we're seeing here is a manifestation of gin activity. Uh, that's really hard to tell because, um, they hide themselves so well. Just, just by its are, very nature, there are, there are it's hard to tell. clouds, yeah. I, I have a number of pictures in, of, of people who are walking, then all of a sudden, this uh, globe of light, there's not globe, but a, a, a blob of light that's almost you know, the same height as a human being moves over to them and encompasses them and mm-hmm. goes around them. And um, things like this, or people, in, and I've been shown pictures of... of Forms almost look like looking like uh, mist forms taking the shape of human beings and then dissipating. And um, and also, you know, there's this is stuff that I, I picked up in Saudi Arabia. And this is stuff I picked up in Oman in Syria. But you know, I'm going through the internet also, and there's some stuff coming up that are supposed to be ghosts and stuff. But you know, I, I really don't pay too much attention to what I find on the internet because. You know, most of it can be faked pretty easily. Right, right. Um, so, yeah, I have seen some images, but I have not seen a picture of, like, a gin manifesting into physical form, like genie coming out of the bottle with the smoke and coming right. into, into genie. No. I don't think one exists. If it does, somebody's keeping it pretty hidden. Or if a picture like that does exist and the gin want to say hidden, they would definitely uh, arrange for it to be destroyed. I mean, over in the Middle East countries, is there the same kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, suspicion that, hey, the government knows what this is and they're studying it? This is like we have the UFOs here where we think that, you know, the government or some people think the government knows everything about it and maybe even has this stuff on hand. Is that, do they have that same dynamic over there with this? Well, not all of them. But there is a belief over there that the governments of the world, especially the governments in the Middle East, along with the United States and some other countries, are trying to capture a jinn because they believe that they use some type of technology 
to cross over the dimensions and they want to capture one to steal this technology. And uh, like I told you, the story that I heard from um, the member of the royal family and then from this teacher over in the Hajar Mountains. And I also heard a similar story in the United States in Pine Bush where one day, on a number of, of nights, entire areas were were uh, uh, blocked off by the military. The military representatives, soldiers went up to the doors and knocked on the people's home and said, stay inside, don't worry, it's just an operation, it's just a practice operation, training operation for terrorism. And um, they looked, people looked out and saw all these military vehicles coming up and soldiers going and making a perimeter and so on. Mm. Now later, I found out that this was before, by the way, before I even made my trip to the Middle East. I found out that, um, you know, digging more information and digging, using my contacts, that over in that Pine Bush area, that particular Ellenville, Pineville, parts of the Hudson Valley, there are portals where Jin enter our universe, and that there are there has been a military presence out in the Hudson Valley and over on the west side of the Hudson, Hudson River, where military personnel have been trying to capture a dimensional being that is inter inter interacting with our world, coming into our world from a parallel dimension. They believe it's using some type of technology to do so. They've been trying to capture it. So I heard, that's the that's three sources I heard the story from. One before I even went to the Middle East when I was still chasing aliens and UFOs. And the second was from the member of the royal family. And the third from the teacher in the Hajar Mountains, that there is an operation that is trying to capture Jin. And, you know, huh. I wouldn't doubt it. Phil, let me ask you, uh, because you're someone who worked with Hynek, and I'm sure you've seen a ton of documents, is there anything in these released top-secret documents uh, about Jin or about even thinking about UFOs in terms of dimensional beings and things like that? Because it does seem to all still be um, either just unidentified objects or related to space alien you know, concerns. Yeah, no, the only thing that I heard Dr. Heineck mention was that um, uh, he came across documents and that there were a number of, of experiments being done to uh, bridge the dimensions because they had partial contact with dimensional beings and uh, they want to establish some type of communication. This was at a time where he started to switch his beliefs in UFOs that some of them are from a parallel reality rather than extraterrestrial. Huh. <laughs> so how long before Richard Doty shows up at your door with some mysterious documents? I guess that's... <laughs> well, you know, I mean, um, I really don't believe that all the documents that pop up and people claim they have are actually real. Because I know, because, you know, during the Vietnam War, I was assigned, I was assigned to a special ops unit in Cambodia. And I, I know how closed-knit these organizations are. If anything snuck out, it would immediately be retrieved. And um, uh, I'll tell you, these people who claim to have official documents exposing all this, don't, they're either fakes or they're disinformation, because this group of individuals in the intelligence organizations will never let that stuff out of their sight. And even the MJ-12 documents, I mean, 
I believe are, 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 I don't even know where they got the majestic and that thing there. But I'll tell you, a story that I put in um, Ultra Terrestrial Contacts, which is my book that came out in December, and I was going to end the whole book with, um, you know, just talking about MJ-12 and so on. And I wasn't going to add that story that over in, um, when I was in the Vietnam War, and I spent uh, six years in the military, and I was assigned to a lot of uh, activities over in Southeast Asia, especially in Cambodia. And I was getting in trouble all the time. You know, I wasn't exactly the best soldier. I was pretty much a rebel. And one day I got called into my commander, and he was a full bird colonel. And uh, I figured I was in trouble again. And I was directed into his, you know, office area, and he wasn't there, and I was told to wait, sit down until he came back. Well, I went over to his desk and looked at his desk because I figured there might be something up there to say how much trouble I was in. And I saw a document on there that was actually laying in a folder. I thought that was the folder with my information that I was getting another, another Article 15 for telling some officer, you know, to go, you know, shove it up, you know, where. Um, and the, the document was a conditioning for uh, World War III. How do we gain control of the population in the event of um, a future emergency. And the document was listed, it was called the Majestic Project. And down below, there was all kinds, I was reading it pretty fast, there was all kinds of ideas on how you control the population. The first one was terrorist attacks. Attack, an attack on the United States to get the people to give in to the government. The second one was the idea of viral warfare, that viruses have been released by terrorism to control the country, to get injections so you can control the country. The third one was actually, believe it or not, induced the idea of an alien invasion. And uh, how would they do this? by contacting and getting certain members of the major media involved as part of the project and the military, the intelligence organizations. And the whole purpose of this majestic project on this document seemed to, um, it was called Conditioning for the Survival of the Human Race After World War III and how to get the population under control before that time. And... Um, this is the only document that I've ever seen in the military that had the name Majestic. And I often wonder if someone who made up the Majestic document got that name from that document from somehow and made up the whole Majestic 12 thing. I don't know. But I know there, is a, there was a document called Majestic, and I saw part of it. Wow. That's, uh, that's scary. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's certainly I mean, fallen line. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at this thing, and I couldn't believe it. Now, this guy was a full bird colonel, and he was part of the intelligence organization, so he was probably out of this comment. He was probably uh, reading the document. He was probably supposed to, you know, get his ideas in with this, because right now, after the war, I don't know if he's still alive, but I know that he was uh, promoted to uh, brigadier general. And um, 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 so... So... Something like this is, could be going on, and if you think about 
my gosh, I mean, that would fit into what I saw in this document. To control the people by an attack on the United States by a foreign power or terrorism? And think about all the control that has taken place in this country since 9-11, how Americans have lost many of their rights with this homeland security. Well, they also did the anthrax scare at, at that time, too. So Absolutely. I mean, you see... Two of the three. So, and one of the things on that document was induce the fear of an alien invasion. Uh, I mean, can we get this guy was, in the show? That was considered... <laughs> I, I don't understand how these uh, – he, he must be a former military person, right? I mean there have got to be other military people who have seen these documents and not agreed with them and then saw 9-11. Uh, where are they? You, you would think that they would speak out and say, oh, my God, you, no, I, they would I read not. this. No, they would not. If a person who was really part of a high security and the intelligence organization in the military, whatever they accumulated during their time – they would keep to themselves. And that's how controlling they are, and that's how much um, um, concern they would have about releasing information. So, you know, there are certain, because I'm not going to name names in the UFO field that claim this and claim that, that they had all this security information and everything about UFOs. And, you know, to me, I believe that's a whole bunch of BS. Because the people who really know that were exposed to all of this stuff, they keep quiet. Mm -hmm. I mean, no doubt about that. I mean, in my position in the military, I was very, you know, I was, I was, you know, I was a grunt, you know, and I would have never saw that document if I didn't go snooping around that desk, but I was looking for something, for some kind of information to show how much trouble I was in. And I was in trouble. When he got in, I got chewed out about doing something. And I got another Article 15, which is commander's punishment. But, you know, that's another story. Well, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, we uh, have gone, wow, at least two hours. So thank you for that. Can I ask you, I, I've, someone had written in some questions for you just really quickly. These two questions from Shane, who went on our Stone Chambers field trip when last we okay. met. Yeah. Uh, and he said, I have some questions for Phil. He mentioned that this, so this is about the Stone Chambers in Hudson Valley. So for people just to know that we're switching gears here. Um, he mentioned that the Stone Chambers in the Hudson Valley are laid out in geometrical lines, uh, equal equidistant from each other, with the balanced rock as the central point. Uh, Phil mentioned that he and some of his colleagues found these Stone Chambers simply by walking in a straight line from previous structures. Right. He also, he also mentioned that these structures have been found as far north as Massachusetts. Right. How far south has he found these chambers? Would he feel comfortable letting some of us New Jersey residents look in pre-plotted, predetermined areas for him? Um, they disappear as soon as you get into Westchester County. And they disappear when you get up to Fishkill, New York. Then they reappear in Massachusetts and then New Hampshire and Vermont. And then they disappear again. Um, but the chamber... Uh, the, the, the chamber that was um, found the most furthest south was in um, near White Plains, New York. Um, I have never heard of any chambers being found south of that area or, or any location. And I, I doubt if they exist, to tell you the truth, beyond uh, uh, Upper Westchester County. Okay. And he says, uh, lastly... 
Would Phil be willing to pursue a re-examination into the obsidian dagger that was found in the long, narrow chamber which he handed over to the University of Pennsylvania? Well, I wish I could, but it seemed to have disappeared. Luckily, I took pictures of it. Do they have it uh, at the university, or is it just sitting in a basement no, somewhere? No, it disappeared. Somebody, it disappeared. Somebody took it. It disappeared from their lab a number of years ago, and it's something that was found in New York that shouldn't have been there that probably would rewrite history for that area, and I'm sure like the Indiana Jones movie, it's in a warehouse with all those other artifacts. You know, I mean, it actually did disappear. Either wow. somebody stole it because it's a collector's item, somebody sold it, or, you know, somebody in the government decided that, you know, this is going to put a, a wrench, a monkey wrench in the uh, in our ideas. So uh, let's keep it hidden for a while. But um, I kick my, and I, and, and I'm sorry that was brought up because, you know, that's a sore thumb in my life because I should have never turned that thing over and I kick myself in the butt every time I think about it. Well, I'm sure Shane is now going to be depressed for the rest of the week. So, so there's that. He apologizes. I'm sure. Wait, wait, I got to kick myself in the butt again. (laughs) Well, Phil, thank you very much for being uh, again so generous with your time with us. And uh, you're welcome. And thanks for being in competition with Nick Redfern to see who can write as, as many books in a year as is humanly possible. Well, I'm running out of fuel anyway. By the way, uh, did any of you guys see the uh, the article that the New York Times wrote about me on October 15th about Hulk Rock? Yes, I did. Oh, great. Congratulations. Thanks. I mean, you know, even even the, even the reporter from the New York Times who was out there, off the record, he admitted that there's just something about the place. He was elated there. There was some type of energy that made him really feel good. Hmm. And I didn't really mention to him. And, of course, he played it down a little bit in the article, but he was really impressed with that area. Yeah, I mean, overall, the article is positive, so that's great. Hmm. Okay, guys. Well, give us your website one last time, and uh, and we'll see. Okay, uh, Rosemary Guiley and I set up a website to inf- give information about gin it's www.ginuniverse.com, and that's gin with the D-J-I-N-N, universe.com. Go there. There's a lot of information. There's a trailer that was made about the gin, which came out very good, which is getting a lot of positive feedback. So visit that, and uh, you'll find more about the gin. Very good. Excellent. Phil, thank you very much. Yes, You're thank welcome. You. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye.